0: Okay, we're going to do Natural Remedies for the Garden. This is one of my favorite ones, and you'll find that the principles of natural remedies from human health really apply in the garden, okay? And if you read in the book Ministry of Healing, how many of you guys know about the book Ministry of Healing? If you haven't heard about that, that will tell you everything from how to help your neighbor who's not doing so well to how to help your mother-in-law, okay? I saw one version of that book. It was called Heal the World, Starting with Yourself. I really like that one, yeah. Okay, if you look on page 127 and 128, it gives those eight natural remedies. Most of us can say them backwards in our sleep, right? But most of us have not memorized the thing that comes right in the paragraph before and right in the paragraph after, okay? The paragraph before says, that we should first ascertain the cause, okay? And deal with the cause, okay? And then the next paragraph after the list of those natural remedies says that we should, it's much better to prevent than it is to cure it once you have the problem. So those are our two principles of natural remedies in the garden, okay? And in Proverbs uh, 28, verse, uh, 26, verse 2, it kind of brings out this principle, cause and effect. As the bird by wandering and as the flaw, swallow by flying, so the curse causeless shall not come, okay? But when I read that, I thought, it's confusing. I mean, the birds are out there, the swallows just going all over the place. But when you study about birds, there's a definite pattern to the migration and so on and so forth. So it's the same way whenever there's a curse in your life, in your health, in the garden when the bugs start eating up my, you know, I've got that whole greenhouse full of lettuce or something, I put so much work in it and something starts eating it. Whoa. That's stress. Say, eh? okay, well, there's a there's a cause behind it, there's a reason and if you can find that, sometimes it's hard in human health is Hard to find the cause because there's so many factors, isn't that right? But if you can find the cause then you deal with that. Now the problem with us when we get into natural remedies, many times we're still thinking in the drug mentality which is just treat the symptoms. So if you see a bug you just want something to zap that bug, just kill it, it's done, no problem, great. And so we're we're still thinking in the symptomatic mentality instead of trying to go back and, and find the cause. Okay, And um, so it's like I heard this one little jingle on the radio. It said, eat too well, take dye gel. Okay, (laughs) So you're not thinking about changing your way of eating. You just something to then we get into natural remedies and we go, oh, yeah, charcoal is great stuff. Listen, charcoal. I mean, we are health reformers, charcoal. And then it's just eat too well, take charcoal. (laughs) No, see, that's a natural remedy in a drug mentality, okay? So what we're gonna be talking about here is trying to deal with the cause, always uh, deal with the cause, okay? And he's, here are the basic steps to natural remedies, okay? And the most basic one is starting with the soil and the plant health, which would be, just what we talked about this morning, build the organic matter, and balance the soil nutrition or fertility. That is sort of the definition of a healthy soil. So you can have a lot of organic matter but not have balanced fertility or you could go in there and try to fine tune balance the fertility but not be building organic matter. You gotta get the, the two together, okay? And so that's a very important then management practices like crop rotation and then resistant varieties and then encouraging the biology there like beneficials and then maybe sometime you can't figure out anything else you do physical control which is like put a floating row cover over to keep the bugs out okay well that's a natural remedy but you didn't find the cause did you otherwise you wouldn't have to put that row cover say so we're we're glad we're doing it in natural instead of just spray on malathion but when we put that row cover on, we're sort of saying, I am, we're going, oh man, well, that'll give me another year to figure out the cause and effect relation. And then, of course, we really have admitted defeat if we have to use botanical insecticides, which is a poison. It comes from a natural source, but it's a poison. So we're going, oh, botanical insecticides, see. And so, so it's a whole mentality. See, we want to find a cause, don't we? Yeah. So we start with building our um, soil health. Oh, I'm pressing the wrong button here. Okay, um, I want to tell you a story about when I was in Alabama, my dad was managing the garden in the Lifestyle Center, and I was managing the farm. I had about a six-acre garden, and he had maybe, 1,000 square foot garden, okay? And so he'd really built up his garden with a lot of organic matter, compost, uh, green manures, I'd helped him with that, and green sand and seaweed and rock phosphate and, you know, that kind of stuff. He'd really done it intensively. And one day we were eating lunch and he said, he told me he was gonna plant some beans in the garden. Well, I said, Dad, I've got the two row corn planter on the tractor, I'll just zip in there. I'll plant those beans for you. And so I did. I went zip, zip, zip with a two row corn planter, planted six rows of beans. And then the same hour, I went and planted four rows of beans on the farm, 300 foot rows, Okay. Well, his garden was a lot more built up. And he had three foot rows. That corn planter was set for three foot rows. His Blue Lake beans, they bushed out so much that you could hardly find. You had to really work to find a place to stick your toe down in there you know, between the vines. They had just grown together and there were a few bean beetles here and there but they were not causing a problem. He just picked tons of beans. My beans, they grew and they produced beans but the bean beetles were just eating them up. I sprayed them with rotenone, the botanical insecticide, but still, I mean, Alabama is like the bug capital, second only probably to Texas of the world you know and so I'm thankful for all that time I spent in Alabama because it you know gave me experience with a lot of different bugs and and what can be done with natural ways so here's a Mexican bean beetle and of course this is adult here um, they look more like this actually and uh, they, they, they do eat but then when their larvae start hatching out they just turn the leaves into sieves okay and so um, Anyway, all that, I hadn't built my soil nearly as much as my dad, so it just really illustrated to me soil health is the way to go, not spraying on um, botanical insecticide, okay? And here's aphids. I was in uh, Switzerland visiting this one lady in the greenhouse, organic greenhouse grower. She told me, whenever I have an aphid problem, it's because I have a root problem. A problem in the root zone, too much compaction, not enough aeration, um, not good drainage or whatever. And so I remember that. And I found many times that aphids are caused, like I told you before, by too much nitrogen. That's the first thing I think of whenever somebody comes and asks me, Oh, I've got an aphid problem. Well, how have you fertilized? You put on chemical fertilizer, nitrogen, or you put on too much chicken manure or something like that that just made a lush growth seems to invite aphids or not enough nitrogen sometimes um, invites aphids and you know many times we we um, think backwards as humans it seems like you know our way of thinking, of course selfish but but otherwise we just get so we think bugs are bad maybe we ought to try flipping it over well bugs maybe are good they they tell us what is the unhealthy plants they're coming in they're sort of the garbage disposal crew see so they can tell us and then we know to do something we need to go back and balance the soil and and so on and so forth see and um, of course you know if you have a bug in your garden so you don't just plow everything under because what you're growing with a few bugs may be more safe than what is over here in some other safe way or something like that so um Okay, um, actually, I was when I was in uh, visiting Elliot Coleman, he was telling me how he was able to create beds side by side, the one uh, with, uh, I think it was zucchini squash, the one attracted uh, cucumber beetles. This is uh, spotted, oh boy. This is a spotted cucumber beetle here and this is a striped cucumber beetle. But I don't care which one it is they eat your you know melons and cucumbers and squash and they also bring bacterial wilt in their mouth parts and that's when you see that cucumber plant is just about to start producing cucumbers and it just all of a sudden goes like it ran out of water that's the the bacterial wilt plugged up the organism plugged up its vascular system and it just welts okay so anyway he was able to basically create beds side by side. One attracted the cucumber beetles and one basically not attracting them. And the way he did that, one bed he fertilized with fresh chicken manure. Okay, very pushy in nitrogen, even though it's organic fertilizer, but very available, you you can, you know, fertilize it too much with nitrogen. And the other bed, he was living at the time on the main coast, and he had a lot of seaweed, and so he composted seaweed with his horse manure, very well-made compost, and he, uh, you know, put that in the other bed, and it wasn't attracting uh, cucumber beetles. Okay, and um, so uh, seaweed actually has a, a growth hormone in it called cytokinin, and that really um, Stimulates the growth of the plant, but it also works to help the plant build the amino acids into proteins Okay, nitrates go to amino acids and then the protein so it was you know everything was working the way it was supposed to and uh, They've done research that shows that that it's the free amino acids Just floating around like building blocks that haven't been built into healthy protein that signals the bugs to Attack the plants, okay? So, um, so that kind of fit with you know what he was uh, dealing with there. Okay, then here's some management practices. Uh, crop rotation um, can really uh, help with a lot of, especially diseases. Okay, and like Joel was saying, there's certain crops. That are very disease prone. The three top families are the nightshade family, like he was talking about this morning, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, um, potatoes, and then uh, the cabbage family, you know, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and so on and so forth, and the squash family. So, those you want to be very careful to have a good rotation, not plant them more often than once every three years. Your lettuce or your radishes, well radishes I guess are in the cabbage family maybe, but your lettuce or your radishes or your this or that, you know, you can be more sloppy with it, but you want to be really careful with those three plant families to not plant them more often than once every three years and even more often is better. I think if you study into club root, that's a problem you'll have in brassicas or cabbage family where the roots just get big knots on them. They say it takes seven years for that organism to get worked out of the soil, okay? So the longer rotation you can without, you know, getting stressed out, uh, the better. And it's kind of fun to, you know, Turn your children loose on it. Give them a homeschool assignment to make uh, rotation plans. And a good way you do it, you just take uh, little file cards and you write out the different vegetables on there, and then you shuffle them around. To you can make it into a board game. You know, who knows? Uh, you might become a millionaire <laughs> doing that. Okay. Um, but anyway, rotation. One insect that rotate. You know, I can't guarantee if you rotate your crops that you won't have any problem with bean beetles, okay? Because the bean beetles can fly from over here to over here, okay? One insect that it will uh, really help, rotation will really help, is nematodes. That's a microscopic soil um, worm in the soil that pierces into the roots of your crops and messes up the flow of the sap, and your plants just, uh, just, well, nematodes has real problems with okra, tomatoes in in Alabama, I would not grow a tomato that wasn't well, we'll do that here pretty soon. That wasn't resistant to nematodes because in the sandy soil in the south, the the warm climate and sandy soil terrible problems with nematodes. The further north you get and the more clay the soil, the less nematodes and the more organic matter in the soil, the less problems you have with organic, with nematodes because that encourages the parasitic fungus that pierces those nematodes and just the fungus just grows into the inside of the nematodes. One more reason to build your organic matter. Okay, but just rotating will uh, the, the nematodes go with the plant families. So if you plant tomatoes year after year, they build up. But if it's a long time before you plant tomatoes again, the the levels of nematodes that atta- attack tomatoes will go way down. Okay. Then sanitation, no, just basically keeping your garden clean in the fall. Clean up your garden so you don't have those tomato vines out there to produce a bunch of you know um, late blight spores that will infect your next year's tomatoes. You see or or if you do have a terrible, you know, plant that's just sick, well yeah, put it in the dumpster or something. But of course again, if you're rotating your crops, you just till that those tomatoes in in that area, even diseased plants, and there'll be three years or five years before you plant tomatoes there again. So it'll have all time to so rotation and sanitation sort of sort of go together. And then encourage the beneficials. That is a big part of prevention. But you can see all these are prevention type of things. I found in Alabama if I would read the extension bulletins from the, you know, extension service that would tell me how to grow a certain crop and I would do all the cultural practices which included rotation and building organic matter. That was the first half of the bulletin. I wouldn't have to do the second half of the bulletin, which was all the pesticides, fungicides, and so forth, because I'd, I'd prevented the problems. Okay, encourage the beneficials. And the way you encourage beneficials, you, you don't buy, you know, you can buy ladybugs, but they have a mind of their own and they'll fly off to wherever. So it's best to encourage them. If you give them food and shelter, they'll be there. And their food is the embellifer, uh, Flowers such as uh, dill, caraway, carrot, fennel, and those. And the composite flowers like marigolds, calendulas, and so forth. And you can buy those from Johnny's and Peace Valley Farm Supply. One's called Good Bug Blend. Another one's called Border Patrol because you plant them around the border and it attracts the beneficials. And they patrol your garden. Okay. And um, what we do, I was telling you, we have that kale that we keep over the winter under plastic or in the greenhouse and but it's good if it's in your garden because many of these if you plant dill in, whoops if you plant dill in your garden it'll take it a long time pretty long until it gets up and flowers and all this But if you have that kale, it's already growing and it puts up that spike and makes all those yellow flowers and that it just attracts the beneficials early at the same time as your early lettuce and peas and everything. And so you've got all those beneficials already jump-started from the beginning of your, uh, so whatever plants you can find that function that way in your garden is really great. And then shelter to have some You know don't just have that perfect suburban lawn with everything just sprayed with roundup or this or that you know to have some little areas of herbs and they're a little bit shaggy then uh, the beneficials can sort of hide in there or you don't have a thousand acres of monoculture like they have in california but you have diversity of plants that also is very uh, very important okay here's a hoverfly this is one of the beneficials and they can be as big as a hornet, you know, they kind of go, nur, 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 and they hover, or they're so small you can hardly see them, okay? And they don't, they actually live on the nectar of these beneficials, but then they lay their eggs, and this is what their larvae look like, okay? Is this kind of translucent worm that you can see the guts working in there, and they just eat the aphids out of house and home, okay? But a lot of times you won't even see what's happening. It's happening there, but you know, it's on a micro scale and um, those are the good guys. And like, uh, you know, like Elijah said to his servant, there's more for us than are, there are against us, see? So of all the insects in the world, there are a lot of beneficial insects. This is a Newman wasp and um, it stings into the aphid, lays its egg in there and then it hatches out and the, pupa or larva eats out the inside of the aphid and then it pupates and then it hatches out and goes to sting more aphids and leaves that aphid as a little like a Chinese lantern on the leaf. And of course we know about ladybugs. Uh, Do you know what a ladybug larva looks like? Here's a ladybug larva. It looks like a little gila monster or something like that. So you know you need to know what, wh- who your friends are. Don't kill them. This is a ground beetle. One time in Colorado, we um, didn't have any problems with our, we had all kinds of uh, uh, potato beetle adults. And they were laying their eggs on the potatoes and we had a um, natural insecticide to spray on them, but we never needed to spray them because the eggs just started disappearing. And we went over to Colorado State University and talked to them, and after we talked to them, they showed us, they had all these drawers of bugs in their place there, and they showed us all the different bugs that might have been eating those potato beetle eggs, and it came down to this lowly ground beetle. And what really encourages it is if you have trash on your soil. They like to hide in that organic matter. So one more thing, organic matter, yes. Good stuff. Okay. Um, oh, one thing with the beneficials, you don't want to jump to, even with with natural insecticides, you don't want to jump to just zapping the bugs. Okay, one time in our greenhouse, the aphids were just Our tomatoes in the greenhouse were about this tall and the aphids were just crippling them and so we got the entomologist from over Colorado State University Whitney Crenshaw he came in and he started looking and we were going to spray insecticidal soap which is an organic spray he said no don't even don't even spray that insecticidal soap because that is hard on the beneficials you've got so many beneficials and he started showing us the hoverflies, oh yeah, the little hoverflies, just all of them. and then he started showing us the Newman wasp, and they were actually fighting over aphids to sting. Okay, and the ladybugs also. So we just held off for another two weeks, and the good bugs caught up with the bad bugs. It was really great. Yeah. Okay, plant resistant varieties. Um, like I said, in Alabama, I would never plant a. Um, tomato that wasn't resistant to nematodes. And that's these uh, codes here, okay? The V stands for verticillium wilt, the F for fusarium wilt, and the N for nematodes. So I grew better boy tomatoes. Uh, big beef is one that Joel was mentioning, resistant to, it's not only resistant to VFN, but I think it's also tobacco mosaic and, and several others has very long resistance code. So this is a very easy thing to do. You just kick back in the winter time by the fire and read the Johnny's catalog and find those resistant varieties. It's really fun to do. Um, cucumber mosaic uh, resistant cucumbers, powdery mildew resistant peas and squash, um, anthracnose powder de- mildew resistant melons, just to, a, just to mention a few. And here's the codes, OK? Which is, I guess, we already pointed out in the Johnny's, uh, Johnny's catalog. OK, then biological control. Um, and uh, that would include the beneficial insects and that kind of thing. But here I'm talking about a spray that is a bacterial insecticide. So you're using biology to kill the bugs, you might say. And um, <clears throat> one of my favorites is uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. And it's a naturally occurring bacteria that gives the cabbage worms a stomach ache and they quit eating for a little bit too long, OK? And it comes in trade names like Dipel, Thuricide, and so forth. Um, but it's more effective in the university tests and so forth, more effective than seven and those those kind of, you know, uh, Hardware store insecticides, Dipel. And you just, you know, get a wettable powder, mix it up in water, spray it on your cabbage, and it just, you'll have beautiful clean cabbage, broccoli, and all that kind of thing. Um, Or you can get a dust. Sometimes many garden centers have Dipel dust. If you have a small garden, you know, it's easier just to have a a duster and go out there and do a few few puffs than, than have to mix it all up in water and all this stuff. But, um, you know, many times you go to your garden center and you tell them, I want Bacillus thuringiensis, they'll just shrug their shoulders. And But you just stay there, you say, well, you know, maybe you can get, go get your chemical supplier catalog and look through there to about page three, three-quarters of the way through, they'll finally find, and you got to know, you're looking for Bt, you're looking for, which is Bacillus thuringiensis. And, trade names like dipel and so forth and they'll finally you know they'll finally figure it out and they can get it they can get it Uh, or it might be on the shelf you know there's so then there's um, we'll skip over this middle one but this is one that's really big now and Johnny's has it uh, spinazad okay and that will take care of cabbage worms and a variety of other uh, things like potato beetles and so forth. There's a, a good bunch of uh, Spinozad. You can even get it in Lowe's and, and so forth. You look there on their shelf and they'll have Safer's insecticidal soap now and they'll have, or some kind of insecticidal soap. They'll have Dipel many times or some kind of BT and they'll have some kind of Spinozad product and also have neem which is a, is a uh, extract from the neem tree. Okay, so um, finally catching up with all these things. So those are very easy, you know, to do and uh, uh, don't use seven and malathion and those things. That's from way back in the dark ages. Okay, then physical control, that's like floating row covers and if you look there on page, what was it? Was it page 200? At the very top of the page there's an extra light row cover. It's called, I think it's called insect barrier, okay, and it's so thin that it uh, won't heat the plant up. If you just put that regular 0.55 row cover that's meant for keeping things warmer, and you do that in Texas or even West Virginia, as it gets into summer, it'll get too warm, you see. So if you're trying to keep out the cucumber beetles, then you need that insect barrier weight, not the... Not the row cover uh, weight. And then another thing is that kale and clay they, they use for putting on fruit trees as a barrier. Okay, then here are the botanical insecticides. You remember that when we do this, we're admitting defeat, right? We <laughs> run on a botanical insecticide, but it's still better than a chemical insecticide because it's coming from a plant source, it usually breaks down more quickly. I wouldn't re- actually recommend rotenone anymore. Whoopsie daisy because it uh, does have, um, it's quite poisonous, and it does have residual effects, they found. It stays quite residual. I'd recommend pyrethrin, even though it's quite pricey. If you look in Johnny's catalog or or, uh, whatever, pyrethrin, uh, but that would be the one I would choose. Some people even have questions about neem, um, certain things it has in it, but um, I've used neem in the mission field, uh, we just had neem trees there, and it's really great. You make your own natural insects. It's not actually a poison. It actually slows down the reproductive cycle of the bugs. So if you're down in Dominican Republic and you spray that on the bugs down there, it will get you from the the bug pressure of Dominican Republic back up to about what it's like in Texas or Alabama. Okay. <laughs> If you spray it in Texas or Alabama, it'll get you about up to West Virginia. And if you do it in West Virginia, it'll get you about up to Michigan. You get the idea. Okay, here's, um, now we're gonna go through this list that you have here of we always need some direct uh, cures. Okay, so we're just gonna go down through this, what you would do if you got this problem. And of course, many of these we're gonna be reviewing uh, what we've already talked about. So for aphids, you don't want to over fertilize with nitrogen. You want to encourage the beneficials. That's where encouraging the beneficials shines the brightest is controlling aphids, okay? Because you saw all those ones, they deal with aphids. That's a... Okay, then in Europe, I learned about stinging nettle tea. I don't know if you have that down in Texas, but stinging nettles, you just take that and put it in a five gallon bucket or a tub, just put a bunch of them in there, fill it up with water, let it sit 24 hours, and then you spray that on your aphids. Okay, and um, then insecticidal soap—that's what I use because I don't want to fool with stinging nettles. So you just buy insecticidal soap, and they have selected these soaps. The fatty acids in the soap is what takes care of the aphids. So they've selected the ones that have the best fatty acids to control the aphids. When I go around to fooling around to. Mixing up a spray and spraying it, I want to be sure it's going to work, not some, you know, this, that, or the other soap. So it's not that expensive insecticidal soap. Okay. Um, then for ants, do you guys have fire ants down here in Texas? Okay, yeah, we had those in Alabama. And they like to eat the skin off the broccoli stems and cab- broccoli and cabbage, they would just, you know, just collar those uh, cabbage stems so I found if you put powdered charcoal right around each plant that the ants did not want to cross that charcoal barrier so another another good charcoal uh, remedy okay then army worms it's just a kind of a blackish uh, velvety looking worm that will just eat the big gashes in your beet leaves or your kale or even carrots sometimes it'll just eat the leaves off the carrots okay but it's in the Lepidopterus family and so bt will take care of that bacillus syringensis or dipel okay and then bean beetles um, there is a parasite which i can't even pronounce the name of it here that will parasitize bean beetles, but at least in West Virginia, it's too cold. It won't overwinter, and so you have to release it. It's quite expensive. So for the average gardener, I tried it one year. They must have just flown away or something. It didn't control my bean beetles. But it is; it it does work, Um, but uh, you can use something like pyrethrin to um, control bean beetles. Actually, uh, um, Bob Gregory, um, who's close to us there, he uses trap crops a lot and he says that planting yellow-eyed beans uh, along with your green beans, the bean beetles like yellow-eyed beans better than they like green beans. Okay? But I haven't tried that yet so you know I'm always cautious to recommend something until I've actually planted it in my own own garden. Okay then cabbage worms And cabbage loopers, uh, dipel. We'll just take care of them, Um, no problem. Let's see, we're supposed to be clicking on through here. Oh, that's a lacewing, also takes care of aphids. Um, Lacewing larva, ladybug, yeah. OK, there's an ant, in case you don't know what those are. There's the army worm. Sometimes they're called fall army worms because they, many times. there's a bean beetle, Mexican bean beetle, and the larva. And this is actually the, uh, this is a larva that's been parasitized by one of those uh, little parasitic wasps. Okay, here's the imported cabbage looper. And this is the cabbage, or imported cabbage worm and the cabbage looper. I really don't care which it is. All I know, I've got a worm in my broccoli, and my customers are just, they'll go to Kroger's when they see that. See, they don't care if it's organic anymore. They just go crazy, so. Actually, I don't like worms in my broccoli either, so. okay. and here's cabbage maggots. And crop rotation is uh, very good for taking care of that. Um, Here's the corn earworm and um, if you have a lot of beneficials it will really help with the corn earworm but uh, you can also use mineral oil you just take a little mineral oil put a few drops on the silk okay so here's the end of the ear and the silk is just coming out here and uh, i usually wait until it's starting to lose its real green color because i'm afraid it might affect the pollination but I put it on all different times and I've never seen it affect the pollination. Just put a few drops right there where the silk goes into the ear because the the moth comes and lays its egg right there on the silk and then the worm eats its way down through the silk into the end of the ear. So you've got that little barrier of mineral oil, then it works very well on a a garden level. I've even done it acres at a time when I had uh, a lot of help in Alabama. Okay, here's a cucumber beetle, and uh, you can use uh, row covers for that. Um, don't over fertilize with nitrogen or fresh manure like we, like we talked about. Um, and uh, then you can use uh, some kind of botanical insecticide. Okay, then cutworms, um, they will just come, you know, after you plant your little tender transplants. Maybe I have a picture of cutworms here. Ah, uh, There's one. Yeah, even your little corn plants. They just like to come and they wrap around that plant and they just cut it Okay, and my gardening teacher when I was 10 years old I had a gardening class in, in school and She would put little paper collars around her cabbage plants. Well, I don't have time to do that I don't want to be able to plant it, you know, just do it and and also, I think she used nails sometimes, put 16-penny nail. Well, I don't want those nails in my garden. You know, the worm goes around and goes to bite, and it's kind of hard on his teeth, OK? Well, I was reading these organic books, and actually uh, books that explained this cal- cation exchange capacity and the calcium, and I read in there that cutworms don't have permission to function in a soil that's balanced with calcium. Okay, and so um, and I found that to be true and I found of course many people that I'm you know come to me with cutworm problems they can't get their soil balanced right away so I just tell them take some high calcium lime or you can use any kind of lime but preferably high calcium lime and you just throw it down the row kind of make the surface kind of white you know don't just dump it on there but just dust it on good and that will change the not really the pH but the calcium balance okay and I found the biggest problem we had in Alabama there people I would sell them these cabbage plants from my greenhouse and they come back the next day and say oh Steve the cabbage the cutworms ate half of our cabbages and so what they'd done they had a lot of pine needles and oak leaves and they had planted their plants and then they just snugged all this mulch up around them and Soil was probably already acid and not so balanced. And then all this acid mulch just gave that perfect, you know, environment. And so I just tell them, throw that lime down the row. I had one lady call me from Michigan, there'd been one of my seminars. She called me just to tell me, Steve, that worked, oh boy, that just took care of my cutworms. (laughs) Okay, that's great. Okay, um, this is European corn borer, again, crop rotation. Um, and flea beetles, I don't have a good answer for flea beetles. Dust them with wood ashes or, or um, uh, just, you know, if you plant your arugula in the springtime, the flea beetles will just make holes in the leaves. But if you plant your arugula in the fall, you really won't have a problem with flea beetles, okay? So if you can't beat them, join them type of thing. So, yeah. That's what I do in Alabama with the cucumber beetles and the squash bugs. I just kept planting uh, uh summer squash and cucumbers every week or every two weeks you know and so when that set just died, then I had more more coming on okay here's the nematodes this is a micro you know electron microscope probably thing, and there's the root knot nematode damage okay and uh you know the the Um, beans legumes will have nodules on the roots but the nodules will be on the side of the roots but the nematode damage is in line with the root kind of like you know arthritic joints or something say and you know it's root not nematode cyst nematode something like that and um, so crop rotation and also planting a rye cover crop there's something about that rye cover crop that really suppresses the nematodes that like to uh, attack your uh, vegetables. It's kind of a climax stand of a a plant that they, you know, the vegetable nematodes don't function with. Yeah, well, the question was whether if maybe you would plant rye as that seventh year uh, cover crop instead of alfalfa. Well, rye it likes to grow during the winter time, cold, cool time. So it really won't keep going for a full year like alfalfa will. So that's usually used it as what we call a winter cover crop. So when you're done with your garden in the fall, you know, everything's pretty well done, except maybe a little bit of kale over here. You just till your whole garden up. It can be very trashy. All the bean vines are just half tilled in. And you just throw all these rye seeds out there and diss them in or have your children trample it like I was talking about and uh, rake it a little bit on a small area you can do it that way works very well and then it'll just come up like a, a, a lawn over the winter and it'll protect your your garden from erosion and it'll keep the microbes really gone and then in the spring you of course till it in and then plant your your vegetables, but that will give a good, just that winter cover crop of rye will give a suppression of the nematodes effect. Okay, here's the uh, Colorado potato beetles. And um, some people say that uh, having a mulch between the rows will help. That goes along with the ground beetles and so forth. There's several products, like I mentioned Spinozad. I think in Johnny's they have the Monterey Monterey insecticide, I think it is. I didn't look what what page that is on, but um, it is a Spinozad um, uh, product. And you can also use pyrethrin uh, as a botanical insecticide. Um, okay, here's squash bugs. Um, the uh, row covers are good for keeping those out. You have to keep it on there quite religiously uh, in order to take care of the, the squash bugs. And uh, Bob Gregory, he sprays his, the base of his squash plants with um, insecticidal soap and uh, sulfur mixed together as a repellent for the, um, the squash bugs. Okay, here's slugs and as I mentioned before, you can use uh, sluggo or Scargo. 214? Okay, 214 is the Page and Johnny's that has the dipel and I think they have both a wettable powder there and a dust of the dipel. And then the uh, Spinozad, which is the trade name for that, I think, is Monterey um, insecticide. Okay. Um, But uh, anyway, there's this product, uh, Sluggo, or Ascargo, which is iron phosphate, that uh, now they have Sluggo Plus, which has the Spinozad in it that controls some other Uh, ground insects like uh, meal bugs, those little pill bug-like guys. Okay, thrips, uh, encouraging the beneficials. And you can also use these kind of traps, uh, either to trap them out or monitor them. And here's uh, tomato hornworm. Actually, this might be a tobacco budworm, but anyway, just has a different number of stripes, but it will have you ever seen these guys? They just defoliate your tomato plants, okay? And Dipel is very effective on those. So you just spray that on as soon as you see any signs, or maybe even before. And it also for tomato fruit worms. That's the worm. It's actually the same as the corn ear worm. It gets into tomato fruit. That first fruit that's starting to turn red, you go to pick it and the one side of it is just rotten. It's because the tomato fruit worm got in there when it was still very little small fruit. See? And so if you do that, that's what I did in Alabama, I would just spray those first clusters with Dipel. After the first two fruit set, it didn't seem to have a problem for the rest of the season. So those first ones, those are the ones I was most interested in. I was just spraying with Dipel. And, uh, but here you can see on the next slide, encouraging the beneficials because here is a tomato hornworm that's being parasitized by uh, a braconid wasp and these are the packets of I think pupa okay and then those hatch out and go and parasitize more hornworms. When I was a little kid we used to go to our neighbors and we picked the hornworms off for a penny uh, A worm and drop them into kerosene or something but they told us whenever you see those white packets you just leave that one don't pick it because that's gonna you know make more um, more parasites to take care of the hornworms okay so that's a little rundown on uh, uh, what you can do natural and uh, and more natural yes Okay, the question is what you can use diatomaceous earth for, and you can use that uh, for any kind of insects, especially it seems like the the hard-shelled insects, Um, and it's a a mine product of microscopic sea animals that have been, um, what do you say, Um, uh, fossilized, yeah, and all that's left is a silica. And they mill it, and it scratches the insect's uh, exoskeleton and makes them dehydrate. I personally haven't had that much uh, success with it because if the humidity's high, then it, it doesn't dehydrate the, the insect, and so forth. But you can, you know, it's something—it's something to try. Also, it's pure silica, so you don't want to—you don't want to um, breathe it. Yeah. Okay, another question or two? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. And they're eating up
1: my roses
0: and uh-huh. my nut tree leaves, and what's the solution for that? Yeah, yeah. I don't have a good solution. No? Still looking for that. Uh, well, there is one product that you can try, and uh, that is milky spore, which is a disease of the uh, Japanese beetles, and it takes care of the grubs that are in the sod. So you spread this on your lawn this milky spore disease, and it will destroy the grubs. And some people I've talked to say it was very effective. They just put it on and it took care of their Japanese beetle problem. Other people say, well, we put it on our lawn, but there's so much lawn, I mean, you know, they can fly. And so um, that is something to try, but it's uh, not a good. Uh, I have done, when they attack my soybeans, they can just make the leaves into sieve. I'll just throw um, hydrated lime, I just throw it on my soybeans, but it doesn't kill them, it just kind of, you know, slows them down. But it's not a, you know, done for cure type of thing. Yeah. Yes? So do you really put all those insecticides on in the food that you're going to eat? What's that again? Do you really put all those insecticides and in things that you were describing on the food that you're eating? Yeah, yeah, most of the ones that I was uh, promoting as just, you know, I was just smiling my way through there were ones that they're bacterial insecticides. So you can actually, if you read on the label, you can spray it on the day of, you know, it's a natural thing in nature, and they've just put it in a bag. BT is just Bacillus thuringiensis, okay? But then the ones that I would say, yeah, when you put that on, even though it's a natural insecticide, it's still a poison, and it breaks down quite quickly, pyrethrin, let's say, uh, it's an extract from, a, I think, it's a chrysanthemum uh, type flower. Um, so it is a poison, and it, but it, it will break down in the environment and in your garden uh, more quickly than the, you know, other poisons. Okay, but for me, that's my last resort. Okay, uh, but um, I'd say that it's uh, you know something that we can do, okay? And, um, and one thing I might say is, you know, if you read through uh, the Bible, you see that God has promised to protect us from the devourer, okay? So also, when you read about natural remedies, we're told that we should do what we can do and then pray for God's help, okay? So what I've told you here, I've been telling you all about what we can do, okay? But nothing that I said is to in any way um, lessen, depending on what God will do. Okay, so I had a friend who, when the hail was coming in North Dakota, he prayed, and the hail just went around his garden. Okay, so you know when you have those uh, locusts coming across uh, the Texas or something, then you know you you're not going to uh, spray pyrethrin on those things. So that's when we uh, pray, and, and but I believe whatever we do, we should do it in a you know as natural a way. And then there's a time when you just say, okay, God, you know this is your garden, and, and if you want it eaten up, that's fine. But but you know we paid our tithe, and we trust in you. We're in partnership with you. We've done all that we can do, and now uh, we're depending on you to do what we what we can't do. And that's a really great. Um, you know, thing to know that you're in, in partnership with God in in everything that you do. Yeah. Okay, we better wind up here, and we'll take a 10-minute a break, and then we're going to talk some about... Um, we're just going to hit some high points in uh, what you can do to get into growing uh, fruits, okay? Because... Um, For the work you put into it on the long run, you get a lot more from growing perennial fruits, uh, small fruits or tree fruits. And so we're just gonna share with you some of the easiest techniques that we found that can sort of jumpstart that uh, process. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.